360 degrees. High high, 360 degrees. High high, 306, 306, 360 degrees. High high. everyone and welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine produced by members of the KPFA First Voice Apprenticeship Program. Broadcasting from right here in Huchin, occupied Ohlone territory, also known to settlers as Berkeley. Tonight we'll be hearing from Max Dashu of the Suppressed Histories Archives. The archive is a 50-year labor of scholarship and love. Tonight's topic will be on racialized caste, a timely, necessary, but difficult topic to address. That's the program tonight on Full Circle. I'm your host, Darlene Pagano. Stay tuned. Tonight's guest is Max Dashu. I only have one guest tonight because when Max decides to give you the information that she's been collecting low these 50 years from the Suppressed Histories Archive, it's worth your while to just listen to her. And that is predominantly what we're going to do on tonight's show. I have on the line Max Dashu from the Suppressed Histories Archive. Max, why don't you introduce your program tonight? I'm going to call it your program. Okay. Tonight, what I'd like to talk about is racialized caste and white denial. Even just the subject of racialized caste, because of the way this very potent political, defining political reality in the United States, but also through all of the slaveholding states, all the colonial states of the modern world. This is a reality, racialized caste, and yet it's not talked about that way. So what I want to do is look at it as a political system. You know, people tend to think about race as a natural category. And the scientists have been honest to say, well, you know, it's a lot more complicated than that. There's all these things about genomic variation. I'm not going to go into all of that because this isn't really about the actual body or even the culture, but it's about the culture of domination, how systemically race or caste, racialized caste, is constructed as a form of domination. In our modern world, white domination. If we talk about white, we have to understand that white itself is a politicized category. You have all these European settlers of various ethnicities coming from various places and land in the Americas, and gradually, this didn't all happen at one blow, become a category, a caste of white people. Let me define what I mean by caste, because a lot of people tend to think about caste as India and the caste system in India. And there are some relations because in both of the systems, we're talking about a lockbox that is to a large extent based on descent, on ancestry, on phenotype, on recognizable groups who are set apart to be subordinated and exploited and many times uh, targets of violence as a way of keeping them down. 
so we know about class-ranked societies. People talk about that a lot on KPFA. And in those, there may be a greater or lesser amount of upward mobility, social mobility. Sometimes wealth counts more than ethnic origins of a person or other kinds of social ranking can count for a great deal. What I'm calling racialized caste is a system that severely constrains on the basis of origins, and it violently prevents that mobility. It does so by saying, you, know, you are this group, and you have to stay where you are. You have to be segregated physically. You have to be subordinated spatially. You are meant to only do certain kinds of work, and we're going to throw up barriers so that you can't do these more high-status types of work, these higher-paying kinds of work. Even when people do manage, as happened to African Americans in the United States, to break through multiple barriers and actually achieve a middle class status, own a house, build a neighborhood, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit further on, the caste system would try to whack them down. They would try to destroy the house, drive them out of the house, commit violence, acts of racial terror, racialized terror. This caste system is a color-coded lockbox that is sustained through terror, through violence. And there's a lot of different ways that that can happen. And I'm going to go into that. But I just wanted to really be able to define what I'm talking about here as racialized caste. I'm not the first person to introduce this concept, although I've been thinking about it for about 40 years. One of the first thinkers that I ran across that talked about it in this way was a Trinidadian Marxist named Oliver Cox. And he wrote a book called Race, Caste, and Class. So he was comparing and contrasting how these various systems interlock and are not the same as each other. You know, where we sit right now in the United States is we're seeing really dramatic video evidence of the differential in treatment not just through the police system, but that's where it really has come to the fore because of the police murders and the unaccountability for any white person, but for the police specifically or authorities of any shape or brand to commit violence against African-American people. And this would be true also for Native people and many other groups. But here today, I'm just giving this instance to, to talk more specifically about how this fits people of African descent. There's impunity. And we've, we've seen numerous cases of people being killed in real time on video, on a phone somewhere, bystanders trying to intervene and prevent the killing, police persisting in this. And even then, in cases like that, there is no accountability. This is a pattern in which some people have rights and other people do not have rights. Some people can be dragged in on charges that are bogus and put away for decades for life even until their death, as we're now seeing it with COVID in the prisons. These are caste categories. If we look at the Americas more broadly, not just the United States, we have white, we have black, then we have all these mixed race categories. There's actually a pathway we can follow. If we look at Virginia in the 1600s, you will see that there's a step-by-step -step process that eventually leads them to the one-drop rule. And so if you have one drop of African blood, then that throws you into a different caste category. And they're not calling it that, but that's how it functions. In Latin America, also, we have the categories Indio or Indian in the United States, in the English-speaking world. 
uh, mestizo, a whole range actually in Mexico of names for ethnic mixtures that were defined as castes. And they called them castas. There's a, there's a set of casta paintings that you can follow in Mexico in the 18, 17, 1800s. There was the War of the Castas in Yucatan, and that went on for decades, where the Maya fought back against being driven into a state of peonage, which is what happened to indigenous people after the European conquests. There's, there's a lot of different ways we can talk about this, but I want to look more specifically at the situation in the United States and the way that played out. Max, let me just ask one little question and I'll hopefully save a caller or a listener this problem. I'm not clear, and I know it's not a central piece of what you're talking about, but I'm not at all clear on the term phenotype. I'm just not sure. I mean, that's just a scientific word that refers to physical differences that could be measured in any number of different ways. I mean, the, the defining way in, in the U.S. caste system is skin color, right? But right. there's also, you know, physical features of various kinds. Really, scientifically, there's a whole other range of things that are not stuff that we would recognize as race, but that are our traits, our genetic traits. And, and so this, this is, it gets a little more complicated. For example, a lot of people look at people in Papua New Guinea and the Melanesia and say, well, those are black people. And yeah, they are. But they're phenotypically, their genome is really different than, say, African-Americans or Africans. And there's all these, these long and complex travelings that humans have done. I don't know if that answers your question. It does. And it gives me a little more to think about on the very topic that you're going into. So please continue. So we know about slavery. You will find writers, Toni Morrison has written about how in the early days, there was not such a clear, sharp line between slavery and indenture. I'll just touch on that by saying that. We're, we're familiar with enslavement. People aren't necessarily conscious that there was also enslavement of Native people early days especially, but that's not entirely the case because in, in, for example, in the history of California, you had laws in the wake of the gold rush and the massive genocides that happened here that allowed enslavement of Native people and especially Native children. That continues to be in the toolbox of colonization. So I, I want to also just acknowledge that. But generally, we think about slavery in North America, and we're talking about the trafficking of African people through the Middle Passage over into North, South, Central America, the Caribbean, not only the United States, but Brazil and Colombia. You have all these Afro-diasporic communities that come up out of slavery, and there are various historical patterns, but in general, it's one of continued dispossession and repression and racialized caste behaviors where you're automatically seen on site as being in a subordinated group. In the United States, we have the emancipation takes place and suddenly all these folks are no longer legally in bondage. 40 acres and a mule never happens. And very quickly, you have a reconfiguring of the white caste to try and re-enslave by new means the newly liberated African-Americans. So there's a whole group of techniques and legal tricks that are used to extend that subjugation. You've got to remember that the white planter class in the South, but not only in the South, anywhere where slavery existed, 
dependent economically. It was really a parasitical relationship that the white caste had. They were actually battened on the labor and the bodies of the people, not only who were raising the cotton or the rice or tobacco or whatever is being farmed in the plantations, but also in many other kinds of work. The White House was built by enslaved black labor. They didn't want to lose the economic advantage they had from free labor in the past through chattel slavery. And now they worked and they did so pretty effectively to institute new forms of subjugation. And so this is what gave us sharecropper feudalism. Because here's all these landless people. They don't get their 40 acres in the mule. They need to survive. And so they wind up in arrangements where in exchange for a plot of land, they will, like a feudal serf, give over a large chunk of their harvest in order for the right to stay on that land. It's their rent in kind. So this was extremely exploitative, and it was a way of expropriating labor from people who really didn't have a lot of maneuverability. There was also a lot of enforcement to keep Black people from forming their own independent ways of earning a living. A lot of terror was applied to prevent people from becoming economically independent. After the period of Reconstruction, where you do have a brief window, you have Black men being elected to office in the Carolinas and Mississippi and different places. They are in Congress. They are in state office. That's something that there was a huge white backlash against that. That was accompanied by mob violence and a lot of other things. There was a really dramatic example that happened in Wilmington, North Carolina, was a town that had a very prosperous and large black community in in the late 1800s. And there had actually been, here we we bring in class again, there had been uh, an alliance that had been formed between working class white populace and the African-American population. And there was something called the Fusion Party, and they won the election. This is in the late 1890s. What happens is you have a white supremacist terrorist movement arises in Wilmington that massacres black people, destroys their property, drives thousands out of their homes in order to then, basically they staged a political coup to drive out of office the people who had been elected and to reconcentrate power into the hands of white supremacists. And this is specifically the the naming they used themselves. So that was in 1898, I think. And you have actually the, the suborning of a democratic process through mob terror in order to reinstitute white rule. And in various ways, this happened in different places in the wake of wheat reconstruction. There were other strategies. One of them was a set of laws that used police and state violence to imprison Black people. So there were vagrancy laws, and there was chain gangs, and the forced labor system where that you would have people being forced to, again, to work on plantations or road building for the state, but the state would lease them out to labor at very cheap prices, or maybe even for free to white landowners or white business owners. It's basically a way of re-enslaving people on really pitifully limp excuses. If there's a loitering law, then if a black person, usually men were the main targets of this, who was in public space, if they were in town, they could be picked up on loitering. 
they weren't free. They were not allowed to be free. They were targeted in these ways. And then they were put back into a, a prison system. And we're seeing today, this is still an ongoing process. People are still, because the 13th Amendment made that exception to, about slavery for the prisons, we still have Jim Crow 2.0 through the prison system and enforced labor for peanuts for practically nothing. This is a way to perpetuate that exploitative, parasitic relationship of white power to the black community. You have the, all the enforcements of segregation in the towns, in public facilities, in private facilities. So this is everything from the white part of town, the black white part of town, racial covenants and property deeds that you, a house could not be sold to an African-American, or sometimes they would also say Jew, Mongolian, or Hebrew, or other groups, Asians, were cut out from that by these pacts that had the legal force of law, were enforced. And not in, only in the South. These are really a, a mechanism that you see, especially in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, New Jersey, the Levittowner developments in post-World War II U.S. have uh, this same blockage that keeps Black people out of the new housing. There is no access to housing. There's very limited access to jobs and job opportunities. There's practically no access because of redlining to bank loans or mortgages or ability to get out of these very exploitative rental situations where you're paying slumlords more for much, much less. Sundown towns is another aspect of this. And here again, we're not looking so much at the South, although they may have had them too, but this is much more the Midwest and the West, where you have white towns that made formal or informal laws, black people better be out of town by the time the sun goes down or else. And this applied to Chinese people too, in places, you know, lynchings of, of Asian workers were also happening in Montana and California and Arizona. Mexicans were also targets of these means of racialized oppression. Lots of restrictive access and having to pay more for less. So this would go for car dealerships, for loans, uh, groceries, because there are the food deserts. There is less access to goods and opportunities. And that's, we're talking about hospitals. So there may not be a hospital within 70 miles that would take a black person. So if you're bleeding to death, you're going to bleed to death. They are going to turn you away at the emergency room. And, you know, restaurants, theaters, gas stations, pools, universities, we know about this in reading about the Jim Crow laws and, and the segregation, uh, not just in the South. Uh, there were ways that this was enforced. Also, Chicago, for example, is a very segregated city, remains one. And you have a lot of white ethnic gangs participating in these enforcements, keeping black people. Sometimes in Marquette Park, Chicago, you couldn't cross certain streets. This was the white side, this was the black side. So there was this very segregative impulse on the part of the white population. Often ethnic whites who are feeling like, well, we're near the bottom, but at least we're not at the bottom. And so they would become enforcers. Segregation in housing, in neighborhoods, 
There are examples in Minneapolis of the first black family to move into a neighborhood who had people throwing stones and breaking their windows, who were killing their dog, all kinds of mobs coming onto their property and screaming for them to leave. And they hung on for two years. This was one of the first cases that led to the Equal Rights and Housing Act that I think uh, Walter Mondale helped push through in the, in the late 60s. Let's take a break right here for some music. You are listening to Full Circle on KPFA 94.1 FM. The voice you've been hearing is Max Dashu of the Suppressed Histories Archive. Stay tuned. Don't you worry, lay down body. 
we're back. Remember, all links for all material on tonight's show can be found at the kpfaapprentice.org archives. Let's return to Max Deshu and the interview on racialized caste system. But, you know, we just have to really come back to the fact that really severe differences in access to medical care, I mean, really life and death things, you know, the emergency wards or traveling, just to travel through these segregated regions, which is the United States in, in general, you would not have access to services and you could be staring down the barrel of a gun or some other form of violence if someone felt you had stepped over their caste line. I want, what I want to look at here, because we've seen this resurgence of white terror, uh, violence, and really strongly racist movements happening, all this demonization of Black people or any kind of Black liberation movements, all of that has a, a long history already. But I want to talk about the danger of this race war terror, this white terror, because it's something that I don't think people are really aware of the extent of it. And we could compare this, uh, the lynchings, the massacres, and the expulsions of Black people in the United States to the Crusades, to the pogroms, to the witch hunts, to the violence that came out of Europe. This is something that's murderous. Those kinds of toxins they tend to stick around if they're not exorcised. I want to just note that after emancipation, there are a series of white riots, massacres, expulsions that went on in the 1800s. And I mentioned before about Wilmington, North Carolina. The anti-draft riots during the Civil War are another example. White riots, and sometimes they would turn around and target Black people because they were being asked to go fight to end slavery. These patterns were going on in the late 1800s, but they really picked up speed. It didn't get better after Reconstruction or the reaction to Reconstruction, it got worse in the early 1900s. Uh, St. Louis race riot, as it's labeled, it's actually a white massacre of black people, 1917. Big headlines on the front page of the paper. Hundreds of people, they don't even have a count of how many people died in this. You have probably heard, heard of the movie uh, called Rosewood that's about what happened the, the expulsion from a black town in Florida. Black Tulsa is probably the most well-known example. They also called this Black Wall Street. It was a neighborhood in Tulsa. And again, like Wilmington, a prosperous black community. Lots of professionals, educated people. They were doing well. They had worked hard. They were not to enjoy the fruits of their labors because this mob came and attacked them. And they were actually using bombs from the air. They were dropping dynamite or explosives onto that neighborhood in order to destroy it, and they burned it down. And people fled for their lives, as they had done also from Wilmington, as they did in St. Louis. And so that, in a way, St. Louis, that's, that's the prelude to what we see in Ferguson, because people did get pushed out into more marginal areas, and, and that's part of the history of Ferguson as well. But we have the white citizens councils, we have sheriffs and mobs and militias under various names. Of course, we have the KKK, the best known example of that, but there were other groups. 1916, you've got riots like this that are 
beating up black people in Florida, but there's a one period that's known as the Red Summer of 1919. And this was a massive wave of white violence that really was not restricted to any one part of the country. It was around different parts of the United States. And we have terrorist white mobs rampaging, killing thousands of people and dispossessing tens of thousands of black people. Uh, so this is like a litany because these are just some of the places. The list is longer than what I have here, but these are ones that I found. Washington, D.C., Flatley, Alabama, Wilmington, Delaware, Knoxville, Tennessee, Syracuse, New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, Charleston, South Carolina, Port Arthur, Texas, Omaha, Baltimore, New London and Newberry, Connecticut, New York, Morgan County, West Virginia, Lauren County, Georgia, just, just in that one year. And these are not the small outbreaks of violence. These are mass outbreaks where, where many people are dying and losing everything that they owned. This is something that really coincided also with the creation of many of these sundown towns. Oregon was a big place for this. Oregon had a lot of history of trying to enforce white-only towns, which is Oregon even today has, you know, is a much whiter state. The first governor of California, Peter Burnett, starts in Oregon attempting to enforce laws to keep black people out of Oregon. He moves to California and he unfolds basically the same policy or attempts to, and he also becomes the executor of genocidal politics against native people in California. The laws that were allowing the killings that went on, the genocidal policies. A lot of bad actors out there, but we shouldn't get confused and think this is only in the South. It's in the Midwest, it's in New England, and it's for most definitely in the West. In some ways, the violence is fresher there because more recently colonized areas. We have the controversy over the statues. I always get into fights on the Suppressed Histories page on Facebook because people come on and say, oh, that was all in the past and it's not really like that anymore. You're too stuck on the past. These are always white people. Why, why do you keep bringing it up? We need to move on. But, but we have to keep the statues because they're history and it's wrong to destroy history. That's their position, but the statues are propaganda. The statues themselves are terror. They are looming over the public spaces and saying, we admire this particular guy that was the founder of the Ku Klux Klan, and we admire this Confederate general. You're going to have to pass by him every time you go to buy cigarettes or whatever. This denial, this white denial of oppression is a feature of the system. It's not a bug. It is basic. If divide and conquer is the primary means of colonizing and conquering, then maybe we could put in a secondary role the denial and the silencing of the truth and the reality. Because the real problem is that so many white people are A, ignorant and oblivious of what actually has been done to enforce a white caste privileged position in this society. But they also simultaneously have this impulse to deny. There's a fear and there's also an unconscious entitlement. Feminist philosopher Marilyn Fry, who was thinking a lot about racism in the 70s, invented this concept of whiteliness. 
And what she meant by that was not that you were a white skinned person, but there is a set of attitudes and behaviors that are acquired unconsciously by being socialized into a white supremacist society. And this is the presumption, white people are the arbiters of truth and worth. They can sit in judgment, they can demand proof, and this is all socialization. They can get really outraged. And there's this great concept of aggrieved entitlement. So you'll see people derailing. So when somebody's talking about police killings, they'll immediately want to start talking instead about black on black crime. Or they will say, oh, you know, that was a long time ago. Or, and this is another favorite that I've seen pulled up by people who get upset when you post about genocide or slavery on the Suppress Histories page, they'll say, well, anyway, all peoples did this. Everyone had slavery. What are you complaining about? They basically have a belief system that there's no other way for human beings to live, and it's basically hopeless, that these systems are unavoidable which is a really pessimistic worldview. It's also one that's very convenient for sustaining that system of domination. You don't have to look at it. You aren't accountable. You have no involvement. People will say, well, you know, slavery, uh, my ancestors came from Ireland in the 1870s, or they came from Russia in the early 1900s, or even just in the last 25 years. So they say, we don't have any responsibility from that, and we did not benefit from that. But of course, the whole prosperous economic success of the United States is built on colonized labor. It's built on theft of native land. It's built on slavery and exploitation. And the systems that were constructed, anybody who was near the top of that system or who could climb to the top because they are in that white caste automatically is benefiting from all the infrastructure that was created and all the wealth that was created, even the stock market, Wall Street, big slave trading going on there. Also, Wall Street was constructed to create a Dutch colony on Lenape land to keep the rightful landholders off of their own island. The denial is a real issue because we're not going to change this as long as people are still fighting. And, and you'll see this with, with other kinds of oppression. I mean, it's the denial that women are oppressed on the basis of sex is an ongoing issue and you don't have to deal with it. You just fight it. Nothing ever takes hold. There's never any responsibility taken to see that it changes, which is really the only ethical stance you can take, <laughs> is to acknowledge and to make amends and reparative justice basically has to happen. The other side of this, though, is for the experience of African Americans specifically here, but this would be true for indigenous people, is the stress inflicted by racism over lifetimes. There's like this whole legacy of generational trauma, as well as the economic losses. You lose your land, your property is stolen, your house is burned down, you're driven out, you lose everything. You aren't allowed to buy, so you're forced to rent and then have your wealth siphoned off in that way. There are all these ways. Then also just the stress of being treated as a collective threat and the violence that's brought to bear with that as a justification. So here we're back again, not only to police violence, but to Barbecue Betty or any of the other ways that white people try to bring state enforcement to bear on people of color in order to be in control, basically. 
Let's take a pause here for some music. You're listening to Full Circle on KPFA 94.1 FM in Berkeley. back with Max Dashu and the Suppressed Histories Archive. So I, I just mentioned a minute ago about collective punishment and a lot of what I was describing in all of those massacres and mob assaults on black communities is collective punishment. So people are familiar with that as a concept from the way that the Nazis behaved. And we could actually go into a whole program on how the Nuremberg Laws of the Nazis were modeled in part on restrictive covenants around housing, racial segregation, as it was instituted by law in American cities. 
that was one inspiration. Another was the reservations that the United States government used to sequestrate Native people in little patches of what was all originally their land, and they're just given the least desirable areas, the ones that the, the white settlers didn't want. I just wanted to wrap that concept about collective punishment. There's another angle to this, and that is scientific racism. We're talking about ideologies of eugenics, but really the practice of medical experimentation, which is based on the idea that these are people who do not count. Their rights don't count. They have no consent. They have no right to be informed. Father knows best. It's sort of like the, the white man's authority. I'm doing this for the good of science. Therefore, I'm justified in taking this blood and doing these procedures on people and not even informing them. One of the most famous cases of this, uh, they made a movie about it, there's a book about it, is Henrietta Lacks at Johns Hopkins University. They were, without her knowledge or consent, using her blood, and she had this really powerful blood which stayed alive. They were able to replicate blood cells. Her blood went out all over the world without her family knowing anything of this for experimental purposes in order to do scientific therapies, develop treatments and things like that. That's one famous case. There's a lot there in the medical field and we would have to also include forced sterilization, non-consensual procedures, sometimes experimental, other kinds of experimental procedures. I was just reading the other day that they also sold cadavers of enslaved people for medical schools. The consent of the family is not even in the picture. You have uh, slaveholders who are selling the corpses of people that they were their chattel in the economic system. There's a lot of injustice in all of that. I'd like to turn, though, and talk a little bit about the history of racist mythologies in Europe and the way that that played in as an ideology of domination and also of psychological violence against African-Americans and against all people of color. So we have a history in Europe through the process of Christianization, the witch hunts, the Inquisition, persecutions of Jews and Muslims, of pagans, of witches, this demonology that makes dark people like devils. So you will see the devil portrayed as an African. Sometimes the scripture, the writing will call the devil is like an Ethiopian. So you have this idea of white angels and black devils that has already percolated itself into the consciousness. This is long before the colonization of the Americas. And this is like a subconscious script that's running that continues along. And there are even images of black devils carrying off white women that come out of the Middle Ages. And you'll see that that theme picked up in the torture trials of witches who would be forced to parrot back the pornographic fantasies, which were racialized as well as misogynist, that the torturers wanted them to talk about. So you have the judges and the executioners who are administering the torture, and they're basically being forced to say, you know, how the devil was black and how he raped her. And it's just awful, a violation of spirit of those captives inside those dungeons, whether it's Protestants in Germany or whether it's the Inquisition during, during the witch hunts. This archetype of black devils 
and also of the idea that any non-Christian populations are devil worshipers really took hold very strongly. And then as you have the enslavement of African peoples in the Americas, you have the religions they brought with them also being demonized as devil worship. You can see what happened with this when you look at stereotypes about voodoo and the movies that were made about voodoo. All kinds of mythologies that basically made African religion look not just primitive, but evil. That's the backdrop, that demonization of African culture and of African people. As we come to the 20th century, all that is being carried along. It's present through the whole course of enslavement. And then we have the movies and the comic books and the dime novels showing the threatening African or the ignorant, superstitious African, all kinds of different archetypes. But a lot of times these are based on white fear is really a potent theme. And I think we have to look at this white fear, this automatic knee-jerk white fear as part of the dynamic that is involved in the way that white people relate to people of color, how white people react with violence, including police who are ready to shoot at somebody goes to pull out their ID and they get shot because the cop is terrified. He's afraid. Even though he has all the weapons, all the state power behind him, there's a way in which his fear plays in to these murders, this serial pattern of state murder of African-American people. There's a lot of complexity to the way this is all woven together, how it acts itself out in our history. And it's not something that is ordinarily examined in any depth. I mean, maybe in graduate level courses, you'll have thinkers who have written books on this, but it's not something that has received direct and sustained attention in the way we're educated and certainly not for the most part, in the way that a lot of people get their history through film. And film is really a distorting lens about what the reality really was. Racial fear was a topic in films from the very earliest silent films. Yeah. And, and of course, we have the whole story of Woodrow Wilson not only screening Birth of a Nation, which glorified the KKK and was based on a stereotype of the Black rapist, but he was actually, this was his own ideology. He was a supporter of this. He did a lot of things to set back some of the reforms that had been brought through. He wanted to reinstate the white caste's supremacy and did so. It might be worth mentioning a little bit, I'm still researching about Virginia and some of the other early colonies because there's a gradual, it's not all at once, there's a phase by phase series of laws, layers upon layers, that basically creates this U.S. racial caste system. For example, in 1641, Massachusetts made slavery legal, and it actually reversed English common law because father is supposed to be the status determiner. But in slavery, the state of Massachusetts specifies that a child inherits its status from the mother. And this is pretty standard for all the slave states. It's the mother, because when we look at the degree of rape that was going on in chattel slavery of African-American women, then if the father's status was allowed to define the child is free, you know, they would lose a lot of their own children where they were enslaving their own children. 
and they wanted to keep doing that. That's a piece. Then we've got another piece here where there is a woman whose father was a white planter and mother's was a slave and her name was Elizabeth Key. And in 1656, she sues for her freedom. And she says, my father is free and I was baptized. That's grounds for me being freed. And in that case, the court upheld her claim. It's really interesting looking at these 17th century cases because it's not all in place. And there are examples like that where people kind of manage to navigate through that. But the mention of baptism is important because we see in 1670, Virginia passed a law that, quote, Negroes or Indians, and that whether they were free or baptized, could not purchase any Christians. So there's this differential, not only on the basis of race, but also an assumption that Africans are not Christians, and therefore this is another aspect of status. So Africans could not purchase any slaves except for African slaves. Native people could not purchase any slaves, but native slaves were well, the one thing they did not want to see was Europeans being enslaved. So they're laying down these parameters in that period. But that use of the word Christians is interesting because it came up also with Elizabeth Key's lawsuit. And then in 1668, going back two years, Virginia legislature declares that free black women were to be taxed, but not white women's servants or any white women, that, quote, Negro woman, though permitted to enjoy their freedom, could not have the rights of the English. So we're seeing a differential in women's status, and there's no other way to describe this than by racialized caste. It's not because they're female. It's not because of their class. It specifically has to do, are they white or are they black? And that period, there are still Native people around in Virginia, and so that's another group that also is treated differentially. And eventually, Virginia, having pushed out a lot of the Native peoples, the nations got pushed westward because their lands were just taken. Some people stuck around, but those that stuck around were gradually driven down into a racialized caste system, and they begin to be legally defined as, quote-unquote, mulattoes. That's, that's a whole layer of complexity, too. And this happened also in the South when they had the trails of tears that the Muscogean nations and the Cherokees were marched west on those long thousand-mile marches to Oklahoma, to the new declared Indian Territory. So they're losing their lands, and not everybody went. You know, people fled. They went back up into the, the hills of Appalachia in the case of the Cherokee, or they stuck around in rural areas in the bayous in places like uh, Louisiana and Mississippi, there were still Native people around. They weren't supposed to be there according to the white supremacist state, and this was Andrew Jackson, and the, the whole forced march was, was led by him. No Native people, this is going to be white man's land. Native people who managed to remain in their own Choctaw country all the various nationalities, the Yuchi, the Yamasee, whatever group, those that remained were subject to being pushed down into the racialized caste, the same caste as the black people. And there was actually a lot of intermarriage between Chickasaw and the African-Americans, all these different, uh, different nationalities. They were relating to each other. And so eventually they get pushed into the same caste grouping by the white supremacist states. 
that's happening within that period. Really, that was mostly happening within the 1800s, before and after the Trails of Tears. White officials set themselves up, again, as the authority, the official determiner of status. So you see the Black people in the East Coast also, in places like the Narragansetts and the Wampanoag in, in Massachusetts, the Shinnecocks on Long Island. There's a lot of different places, the Lummi, where uh, people intermarried. And so the Narragansetts have African-American ancestry. And that shows. So then you have a move on the part of the white population to say, well, you're not really Indian, you're black. Your ancestry doesn't count because this is a racialized category and we don't care what ethnicity and culture you are affiliated with. It doesn't matter how far back you can recite your ancestors or the histories. None of that counts because we're the white people and we say you're not Indian. And you'll get some very, very angry, vicious statements like this. People might be more willing to recognize a person's native status, even though there was white ancestry. But if there's black ancestry, then the caste curtain, they lower the boom and you will get a lot of pushback and dispute. A lot of those Eastern nations are still like the Mashpee in, in Massachusetts near Cape Cod are still fighting for acknowledgement of their native status because they have been racialized as black people. It's not that they reject black people, they intermarried. The difference, here we could really contrast the two systems because in the whiteness system, it's just race. And if you're dark, then you're in that caste and you're gonna be treated accordingly in subordinating ways. In the native system, it's about your ancestry and the process of cultural transmission and historical relationship that matters. They would adopt and welcome people of various different ancestries. They could be French, they could be Irish, they could be African-American from a whole range of different ethnicities. You know, a lot of that has, where people are trying to track that back, but they weren't looking at that as disqualifying of anyone because they had an African-American father or mother that somehow that invalidated their status as a Narragansett or as a Shinnecock. So then you've got like this whole other level of on Long Island of very wealthy people in the Hamptons trying to fight. There's a reservation there and a little, little bit of a landhold. And there have been battles over that because they want this to be their ritzy neighborhood and they want to have their golf course or whatever it is. This is ongoing. It's not over. It's just this ongoing process of continued seizure, for one thing. The, the seizure of native lands continues and the seizure of black wealth also continued. I should mention when we had in 2008 with the massive looting by Wall Street of the economy and all those schemes that they were, you know, playing casino with the whole economy, 25% of African-American wealth was lost within a couple of years. And so you're thinking about generations and lifetimes of people building up that wealth and maybe it was their grandmother's house or maybe it was their house, but they lost it because Black people were at much greater risk of having high-risk mortgage agreements. And maybe the only way that they could get a mortgage agreement. And this was, again, racialized. There's another way that that happens, which is that Medicare has been expropriating houses from the descendants. There was an elder who was sick for a long time and got medical care through Medi-Cal. When they die, the relatives are being forced to either sell the house 
or to somehow come up with huge sums in order to reimburse the state of California for what was paid out in Medicare. And this is like a blind ball that hits people. They didn't know what direction it came from. And all of a sudden, yeah, you have to come up with $80,000 or whatever the amount was, $250,000, or else you're going to lose your mother's house now that she's gone. Most people don't know this. So I think one of our challenges is a lot of times people confuse recognition of historic wrongs with incitement to hate. This is a lot of times the whiteliness response. And we acknowledgement is a really necessary step to get to reparative justice. And so, you know, our ethics and our honor is shown through solidarity and material support and backup to Black Lives Matter, to the Native sovereignty movements. And so we kind of have to become conscientious objectors to the evils of structural racism, which means we have to actively participate in overturning that. Actively participate. That brings us far too soon to the end of tonight's show. Our executive producer is Miss M. Our technical director is Frank Sterling. Joy Moore is our production consultant. Please visit our website, kpfaapprentice.org, for pictures, links, and information about tonight's guests and the Full Circle archived shows as well. Stay tuned. Up next is La Onda Bajita. Good night.